Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Musings on Theosophy podcast. As promised at the end of Episode 2, this episode will take a different direction from the duo of karma and reincarnation, which were the central themes of our first two episodes. I felt it was important to bring you a subject that was a bit more structured or less pious, because the previous subjects of karma and reincarnation although I don't feel they are, could be considered as such. We, meaning some very knowledgeable theosophists and I, considered a few subjects and arrived at a reading from the ocean, starting at chapter 4, about the sevenfold constitution of man. It will take both this episode and the next episode to discuss each layer, if you will, of man. Through this defining of a human being, and ultimately oneself, I find at once my outlook broaden and both a sense of keenness and enthusiasm about this unseen complexity, and lofty as it sounds, about the trajectory of the whole human species and its spiritual revolution. I hope you'll find it equally as enriching as I do. As I have in past episodes, May I please remind you that it's so important not to allow the archaic use of the English language to distract oneself from truly absorbing the central concepts because they are gems that will serve in this thing we call life. So even though the text is only about 150 years old at this point, words like spook and ghost aren't taken very seriously in our time. Additionally, you'll hear quite a bit about seances, which seems a bit odd in our day, because they're generally looked at as being superstitious bunk. I ask you to please consider the era. My brief research on seances and the movement called spiritualism is that from approximately 1840 to the 1920s, spiritualism was as akin to the time as rock and roll was to the 1960s and 70s. One could say seances were a fad, especially in America and England, where they were ubiquitous. What's most worthy in the text on the subject of seances is a very interesting explanation of the phenomenon people experienced who weren't in the presence of a charlatan. But moreover, this podcast is about gaining an understanding of yourself and your fellow man's composition. So, let's get to it. Here is part one of the sevenfold constitution of man. Enjoy. The Ocean of Theosophy, Chapter 4, Septenary Constitution of Man. Respecting the nature of man, there are two ideas current in the religious circles of Christendom. One is the teaching, and the other is the common acceptation of it. The first not secret, to be sure, in the church, but is so seldom dwelt upon in the hearing of the laity as to be almost arcane to the ordinary person. Nearly everyone says he has a soul and a body. And there it ends. What the soul is, and whether it is a real person, or whether it has powers of its own, are not inquired into. The preachers usually confining themselves to its salvation or damnation. And by thus talking of it as something different from oneself, the people have acquired an underlying notion that they are not souls because the soul may be lost to them. From this has come about a tendency to materialism, 
causing men to pay more attention to the body than the soul, the latter being left to the tender mercies of the priest of Roman Catholics, and among dissenters, the care of it most frequently put off to the dying day. But when the true teaching is known, it will be seen that the care of the soul, which is the self, is a vital matter requiring attention every day, and not to be deferred without grievous injury resulting to the whole man, both soul and body. The Christian teaching supported by St. Paul, since upon him, in fact, dogmatic Christianity rests, is that man is composed of body, soul, and spirit. This is the threefold constitution of man, believed by the theologians, but kept in the background because its examination might result in the readoption of views once orthodox, but now heretical. For when we thus place souls between spirit and body, we come very close to the necessity for looking into the question of the soul's responsibility, since mere body can have no responsibility. In order to make the soul responsible for the acts performed, we must assume it has powers and functions. And from this, it is easy to take the position that the soul may be rational or irrational, as the Greeks sometimes thought, and then there is but a step to further theosophical propositions. This threefold scheme of the nature of man contains, in fact, the theosophical teaching of his sevenfold constitution, because the four other divisions missing from the category can be found in the powers and functions of body and soul, as I shall attempt to show later on. This conviction that man is a septendary and not merely a duad was held long ago and very plainly taught to everyone with accompanying demonstrations, but like other philosophical tenets, it disappeared from sight, because gradually withdrawn at the time when in the east of Europe morals were degenerating, and before materialism had gained full sway in company with skepticism its twin. Upon its withdrawal, the present dogma, body, soul, spirit, was left to Christendom. The reason for that concealment and its rejuvenescence in this century is well put by Madame H. P. Blavatsky in The Secret Doctrine. In answer to the statement, we cannot understand how any danger could arise from the revelation of such a purely philosophical doctrine as the evolution of the planetary chain, she says. Quote, the danger was this. Doctrines such as the planetary chain, or the seven races, at once gave a clue to the sevenfold nature of man. For the principle is correlated to a plane, a planet, a race, and the human principles are, on every plane, correlated to the sevenfold occult forces, those of the higher plane being of tremendous occult powers, and the abuse of which would cause incalculable evil to humanity. A clue which is perhaps no clue to the present generation, especially the Westerns, protected as they are by their very blindness and ignorant materialistic disbelief in the occult, but a clue which would nevertheless have been very real in the early centuries of the Christian era, to the people convinced of the reality of occultism, and entering a cycle of degradation which made them ripe for abuse of occult powers and sorcery of the worst description. Unquote. Mr. A. P. Sennett, at one time an official in the government of India, 
first outlined in this century the real nature of man in his book, Esoteric Buddhism, which was made up from information conveyed to him by H. P. Blavatsky directly from the Great Lodge of Initiates, to which reference has been made. And in this placing the old doctrine before Western civilization, he conferred a great benefit on his generation and helped considerably the cause of theosophy. His classification was, one, the body, or rupa, two, vitality, or pranajiva, three, astral body, or linga sarira, four, animal soul, or kama rupa, five, human soul, or manas, six, spiritual soul, or buddhi, seven, spirit, or atma. The words in italics being equivalents in the Sanskrit language adopted by him for the English terms. This classification stands to this day for all practical purposes, but it is capable of modification and extension. For instance, a later arrangement, which places astral body second instead of third in the category, does not substantially alter it. It at once gives an idea of what man is, very different from the vague description of the words body and soul, and also boldly challenges the materialistic conception that mind is a product of the brain, a portion of the body. No claim is made that these principles were hitherto unknown, for they were all understood in various ways, not only by the Hindus, but by many Europeans. Yet the compact presentation of the sevenfold constitution of man, in intimate connection with the septenary constitution of a chain of globes through which the being evolves, had not been given out. The French abbey, Elpheus Levy, wrote about the astral realm and the astral body, but evidently had no knowledge of the remainder of the doctrine, and while the Hindus possessed the other terms in their language and philosophy, they did not use a septenary classification, but depended chiefly on a fourfold one, and certainly concealed, if they knew of it, the doctrine of a chain of seven globes, including our earth. Indeed, the learned Hindu, Subaru, now deceased, asserted that they knew of the sevenfold classification, and that it had not been and would not be given out. Considering these constituents in another manner, we would say that the lower man is a composite being, and in his real nature is a unity, or immortal being, comprising a trinity of spirit, discernment, and mind, which requires four lower mortal instruments or vehicles through which to work in matter and obtain experience from nature. This trinity is called Atma Bodhi Manas in Sanskrit, difficult terms to render in English. Atma is spirit, Bodhi is the highest power of intellection, that which discerns and judges, and Manas is mind. This threefold collection is the real man, and beyond doubt, the doctrine is the origin of the theological one in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The four lower instruments or vehicles are shown in this table. Atma, Moody, Manas. The passions and desires, life principle, astral body, physical body.
These four lower material constituents are transitory and subject to disintegration in themselves as well as to separation from each other. When the hour arrives for their separation to begin, the combination can no longer be kept up. The physical body dies, the atoms of which each of the four is composed begin to separate from each other, and the whole collection, being disjointed, is no longer fit for one as an instrument for the real man. This is what is called death among us mortals, but it's not death for the real man because he is deathless, persistent, immortal. He is therefore called the triad, or indestructible trinity, while they are known as the quaternary or mortal four. This quaternary, or lower man, is a product of cosmic or physical laws and substance. It has been evolved during a lapse of ages, like any other physical thing, from cosmic substance, and is therefore subject to physical, physiological, and psychical laws, which govern the race of man as a whole. Hence its period of possible continuance can be calculated just as the limit of tensile strain among the metals used in bridge building can be deduced by the engineer. Any one collection in the form of man made up of these constituents is therefore limited in duration by the laws of the evolutionary period in which it exists. Just now, that is generally 70 to 100 years. But its possible duration is longer. Thus, there are in history instances where ordinary persons have lived to 200 years of age, and by a knowledge of the occult laws of nature, the possible limit of duration may be extended nearly to 400 years. The visible physical man is brain, nerves, blood, lymph, muscles, organs of sensation and action, and skin. The unseen physical man is astral body, passions and desires, life principle, called prana or jiva. It will be seen that the physical part of our nature is thus extended to a second department which, though invisible to the physical eye, is nevertheless material and subject to decay. Because people in general have been in the habit of admitting to be real only what they can see with the physical eye, they have at last come to suppose that the unseen is neither real nor material. But they forgot that even on the earth plane, noxious gases are invisible, though real and powerfully material, and that water may exist in the air, held suspended and invisible until conditions alter and cause its precipitation. Let us recapitulate before going into details. The real man is the trinity of Atma Bodhi Manas, or spirit and mind, and he uses certain agents and instruments to get in touch with nature in order to know himself. These instruments and agents are found in the lower four, or the quaternary, each principle in which category is of itself an instrument for the particular experience belonging to its own field the body being the lowest, least important, and the most transitory of the whole series. For when we arrive at the body, on the way down from the higher mind, it can be shown that all its organs are in themselves senseless and useless when deprived of the man within. Sight, hearing, 
touch, taste, and smelling do not pertain to the body, but to the second unseen physical man, the real organs for the exercise of those powers being in the astral body, and those in the physical body being but the mechanical outer instruments for making the coordination between nature and the real organs inside. Chapter 5. Body and Astral Body The body, as a mass of flesh, bones, muscles, nerves, brain matter, bile, mucus, blood, and skin, is an object of exclusive care for too many people who make it their god because they have come to identify themselves with it meaning it only when they say I. Left to itself, it is devoid of sense and acts in such a case solely by reflex and automatic action. This we see in sleep, for then the body assumes attitudes and makes motions which the waking man does not permit. It is like Mother Earth in that it is made up of a number of infinitesimal, quote, lives, each of these lives is a sensitive point. Not only are there microbes, bacilli, and bacteria, but these are composed of others, and of those others of still more minute lives. These lives are not the selves of the body, but make up the cells, keeping ever within the limits assigned by evolution to the cell. They are forever whirling and moving together throughout the whole body, being in certain apparently void spaces as well as where flesh, membrane, bones, and blood are seen. They extend, too, beyond the actual outer limits of the body to a measurable distance. One of the mysteries of physical life is hidden in these lives. Their action force forward by the life energy called prana or jiva will explain active existence and physical death. They are divided into two classes, one the destroyers, the other the preservers, and these two war upon each other from birth until the destroyers win. In this struggle, the life energy itself ends the contest because it is the life that kills. This may seem heterodox, but in theosophical philosophy it is held to be the fact, for it is said the infant lives because the combination of healthy organs is able to absorb the life all around it in space and is put to sleep each day by the overpowering strength of the stream of life, since the preservers among the cells of the youthful body are not yet mastered by the other class. These processes of going to sleep and waking again are simply and solely the restoring of equilibrium in sleep and the action produced by disturbing it when awake. It may be compared with the arc electric light, wherein the brilliant arc of light at the point of resistance is the symbol of the waking active man. So in sleep we are again absorbing and not resisting the life energy. When we wake, we are throwing it off. But as it exists around us like an ocean in which we swim, our power to throw it off is necessarily limited. Just when we awake, we are in equilibrium as to our organs and life. When we fall asleep, we are yet more full of life than in the morning. It has exhausted us. It finally kills the body. Such a contest could not be waged forever, 
since the whole solar system's weight of life is pitted against the power to resist focused in one small human frame. The body is considered by the masters of wisdom to be the most transitory, impermanent, and illusionary of the whole series of constituents in man. Not for a moment is it the same. Ever-changing in motion in every part, it is in fact never complete or finished, though tangible. The ancients clearly perceived this, for they elaborated a doctrine called Nitya Pralaya, or the continual change in material things, the continual destruction. This is known now to science in the doctrine that the body undergoes a complete alteration and renovation every seven years. At the end of the first seven years, it is not the same body as it was in the beginning. At the end of our days, it has changed seven times, perhaps more. And yet it presents the same general appearance from maturity until death. And it is a human form from birth to maturity. This is a mystery science explains not. It is a question pertaining to the cell and to the means whereby the general human shape is preserved. The quote, cell, is an illusion. It is merely a word. It has no existence as a material thing, for any cell is composed of other cells. What, then, is a cell? It is the ideal form within which the actual physical atoms, made up of the, quote, lives, arrange themselves. It is admitted that the physical molecules are forever rushing away from the body. They must be leaving the cells each moment. Hence, there is no physical cell but the privative limits of one, the ideal walls in general shape. The molecules assume position within the ideal shape according to the laws of nature and leave it again almost at once to give place to other atoms. As it is thus with the body, so it is with the earth and the solar system. So also it is, though in slower measure, with all material objects. They're all in constant motion and change. This is modern and also ancient wisdom. This is the physical explanation of clairvoyance, clairaudience, telepathy, and mind reading. It helps to show us what a deluding and unsatisfactory thing our body is. Although, strictly speaking, the second constituent of man is the astral body, called in Sanskrit Linga Sarira. We will consider life energy, or prana and jiva in Sanskrit, together, because to our observation, the phenomenon of life is more plainly exhibited in connection with the body. Life is not the result of the operation of the organs, nor is it gone when the body dissolves. It is a universally pervasive principle. It is the ocean in which the earth floats. It permeates the globe and every being and object on it. It works unceasingly on and around us, pulsating against and through us forever. When we occupy a body, we merely use a more specialized instrument than any other for dealing with both prana and jiva. Strictly speaking, Prana is breath, and as breath is necessary for the continuance of life in the human machine, that is the better word. 
Jiva means life and is also applied to the living soul, for the life in general is derived from the supreme life itself. Jiva is therefore capable of general application, whereas prana is more particular. It cannot be said that one has an infinite amount of this life energy, which will fly back to its source when the body be burned, but rather that it works with whatever be the mass of matter in it. We, as it were, secrete or use it as we live. For whether we are alive or dead, life energy is still there, in life among our organs sustaining them, in death among the innumerable creatures that arise from our destruction. We can no more do away with this life than we can erase the air in which the bird floats. And like the air, it fills all the spaces on the planet, so that nowhere can we lose the benefit of it nor escape its final crushing power. But in working beyond the physical body, this life, prana, needs a vehicle, means, or guide, and this vehicle is the astral body. There are many names for the astral body. Here are a few. Lingasrira, Sanskrit meaning design body and the best one of all. Ethereal double. Phantom, wraith, apparition, double ganger. Personal man, peri spirit, irrational soul, animal soul. Bhuta, elementary, spook, devil, demon. Some of these apply only to the astral body when devoid of the corpus after death. Bhuta, devil, and elementary are nearly synonymous. The first, Sanskrit. The other, English. With the Hindus, the Bhuta is the astral body when it is by death released from the body and the mind. And being thus separated from conscience is a devil in their estimation. They're not far from wrong. If we abolish the old notion that a devil is an angel fallen from heaven, for this bodily devil is something that rises from the earth. It may be objected that the term astral body is not the right one for this purpose. The objection is one that arises from the nature and genesis of the English language, for as that has grown up in a struggle with nature, and among a commercial people it has not yet coined the words needed for designating the great range of faculties and organs of the unseen man. And as its philosophers have not admitted the existence of the inner organs, the right terms do not exist in the language. So when looking for words to describe the inner body, the only ones found in the English were the astral body. This term comes near the real fact, since the substance of this form is derived from cosmic matter or star matter, roughly speaking. But the old Sanskrit word describes it exactly, linga sarira, the design body, because it is the design or model for the physical body. This is better than ethereal body, as the latter might be said to be subsequent to the physical, where in fact the astral body precedes the material one. The astral body is made of matter of very fine texture, as compared to the visible body and has a great tensile strength, so that it changes but little during a lifetime, while the physical alters every moment. 
And not only has it this immense strength, but at the same time possesses an elasticity permitting its extension to a considerable distance. It is flexible, plastic, extendable, and strong. The matter of which is composed is electrical and magnetic in its essence. And it's just what the whole world was composed of in the dim past when the process of evolution had not yet arrived at the point of producing the material body for man. But it's not raw or crude matter. Having been through a vast period of evolution and undergone purifying processes of an incalculable number, its nature has been refined to a degree far beyond the gross physical elements we see and touch with the physical eye and the hand. The astral body is the guiding model for the physical one, and all the other kingdoms have the same astral model. Vegetables, minerals, and animals have the same ethereal double, and this theory is the only one which will answer the question how it is that the seed produces its own kind, and all sentient beings bring forth their like. Biologists can only say the facts as we know them, but can give no reason why the acorn will never produce anything but an oak, except that no man ever knew it to be otherwise. But in the old schools of the past, the true doctrine was known, and it has been once again brought out in the West through the efforts of H.P. Blavatsky and those who have found inspiration in her works. The doctrine is that in early times of evolution of this globe, the various kingdoms of nature are outlined in plan or ideal form first, and then the astral matter begins to work on this plan with the aid of the life principle, until after long ages the astral human form is evolved and perfected. This is then the first form that the human race had, and corresponds in a way with the allegory of man's state in the Garden of Eden. After another long period during which the cycle of further descent into matter is rolling forward, the astral form at last clothes itself with a, quote, coat of skin, and the present physical form is on the scene. This is the explanation of the verse of the book of Genesis, which describes the giving of coats of skin to Adam and Eve. It is the final fall into matter, for from that point on the man, within strives to raise the whole mass of physical substance up to a higher level and to inform it all with a larger measure of spiritual influence so that it may be ready to go still further on during the next period of evolution after the present one is ended. So at the present time, the model for the growing child in the womb is the astral body already perfect in its shape before the child is born. It is on this the molecules arrange themselves until the child is complete, and the presence of the ethereal design body will explain how the form grows into shape, how the eyes push themselves out from within to the surface of the face, and many other mysterious matters in embryology which are passed over by medical men with a description but no explanation. This will also explain, as nothing else can, cases of marking of the child in the womb, sometimes denied by physicians, but well known by those who care to watch, to be a fact of frequent occurrence. 
The growing physical form is subject to the astral model. It is connected with the imagination of the mother by physical and psychical organs. The mother makes a strong picture from horror, fear, or otherwise, and the astral model is then similarly affected. In the case of marking by being born legless, the ideas and strong imagination of the mother act so as to cut off or shrivel the astral leg. The result is that the molecules, having no model to work on, make no physical leg whatever, and similarly in such cases. But where we find a man who still feels the leg which the surgeon has cut off or perceives the fingers that were amputated, then the astral member has not been interfered with, and hence the man feels as if it were still on his person. For knife or acid will not injure the astral model, but in the first stages of its growth, ideas and imagination have a power of acid and sharpened steel. In the ordinary man, who has not been trained in practical occultism, or who has not the faculty by birth, the astral body cannot go more than a few feet from the physical one. It is part of that physical. It sustains it and is incorporated in it just as the fibers of the mango are all through that fruit. But there are those who, by reason of practices pursued in former lives on the earth, have a power born with them of unconsciously sending out the astral body. There are mediums, some seers, and many hysterical, cataleptic, and scrofulous people. Those who have trained themselves by a long course of excessively hard discipline, which reaches to the moral and mental nature, and quite beyond the power of the average man of the day, can use the astral form at will, for they have gotten completely over the delusion that the physical body is a permanent part of them, and besides, they've learned the chemical and electrical laws governing its matter. In their case, they act with knowledge and consciously. In other cases, the act is done without power to prevent it, or to bring about it at will, or to avoid the risk attendant on such use of potencies in nature of the high character. The astral body has in it the real organs of the outer sense organs, in it are the sight, hearing, power to smell, and the sense of touch. It has a complete system of nerves and arteries of its own for the conveyance of astral fluid, which is to that body as our blood is to the physical. This is a real, personal man. They are located in the subconscious perception and latent memory which the hypnotizers of the day are dealing with and being baffled by. So when the body dies and the astral man is released, and as at death the immortal man, the triad, flies away to another state, the astral becomes a shell of the once living man and requires time to dissipate. It retains all memories of the life lived by the man and thus reflexly and automatically can repeat what the dead man knew, said, thought, and saw. It remains near the deserted physical body nearly all the time until that is completely dissipated, for it has to go through its own process of dying. It may become visible under certain conditions. It is the spook of the spiritualistic seance rooms, 
and it is there to masquerade as the real spirit of this or that individual. Attracted by the thoughts of the medium and the sitters, it vaguely flutters where they are, and then is galvanized into a factitious life by the whole host of elemental forces and by the active astral body of the medium who is holding the seance or of the other medium in the audience. From it, as from a photograph, are then reflected into the medium's brain all the boasted evidences which spiritualists claim to prove identity of deceased friend or relative. These evidences are accepted as proof that the spirit of the deceased is present because neither mediums nor sitters are acquainted with the laws governing their own nature, nor with the constitution, power, and function of astral matter and astral man. The Theosophical Society does not deny the facts proven in spiritualistic seances, but it gives an explanation of them wholly opposed to that of the spiritualists. And surely, the utter absence of any logical scientific explanation by these so-called spirits of the phenomena they are said to produce supports the contention that they have no knowledge to impart. They merely cause certain phenomena, the examination of those and deductions therefrom can only be properly carried on by a trained brain guided by a living trinity of spirit, soul, and mind. And here, another class of spiritualistic phenomena requires brief notice. That is the appearance of what is called a materialized spirit. Three explanations are offered. First, that the astral body of the living medium detaches itself from its corpus and assumes the appearance of the so-called spirit. For one of the properties of the astral matter is capacity to reflect an image existing unseen in ether. Second, the actual astral shell of the deceased, wholly devoid of his or her spirit and conscience, becomes visible and tangible when the condition of the air and ether is such as to alter the vibrations of the molecules of the astral shell that it may become visible. The phenomena of density and apparent weight are explained by other laws. Third, an unseen mass of electrical and magnetic matter is collected, and upon it reflected out of the astral light a picture of any desired person, either dead or living. This is taken to be, quote, spirit of such persons, but it is not, and has been justly called by H.P. Blavatsky a psychological fraud, because it pretends to be what it is not. And strange to say, this very explanation of materializations has been given by a, quote, spirit at a regular seance but has never been accepted by the spiritualists just because it upsets their notion of the return of spirits of deceased persons. Finally, the astral body will explain nearly all strange psychical things happening in daily life and in dealings with genuine mediums. It shows what an apparition may be and the possibility of such being seen and thus prevents the scientific doubter from violating good sense by asserting you did not see what you know you have seen. It removes superstition by showing the real nature of these phenomena and destroys the unreasonable fear of the unknown, which makes a man afraid to see a, quote, ghost. By it, we can explain the apportation 
of objects without physical contact, for the astral hand may be extruded and made to hold an object, drawing it toward the body. When this is shown to be possible, then travelers will not be laughed at, who tell of seeing the Hindu yogi make coffee cups fly through the air and distant objects approach, apparently on their own accord, untouched by him or anyone else. All these instances of clairvoyance and clairaudience are to be explained also by the astral body and astral light. The astral, which are the real organs, do the seeing and hearing, as all material objects are constantly in motion among their own atoms. The astral light and hearing are not impeded, but work at a distance as great as the extension of the astral light or matter around or about the earth. Thus it was that the great seer Swedenborg saw houses burning in the city of Stockholm when he was at another city many miles off, and by the same means any clairvoyant of the day sees and hears at a distance. Chapter 6. Kama. Desire. The author of Esoteric Buddhism, which book ought to be consulted by all students of theosophy, since it was made from suggestions given by some of the adepts themselves, gave the name Kamarupa to the fourth principle of man's constitution. The reason was that the word Kama in the Sanskrit language means desire, and as the idea intended to be conveyed was that the fourth principle was the body or mass of desires and passions. Mr. Sinnott added the Sanskrit word for the body or form, which is rupa, thus making the compound word kamarupa. I shall call it by the English equivalent, passions and desires, because those terms exactly express its nature. And I do this in order to make the sharp issue which actually exists between the psychology and mental philosophy of the West and those of the East. The West divides man into intellect, will, and feeling, but it's not understood whether the passions and desires constitute a principle in themselves or are due entirely to the body. Indeed, most people consider them as being the result of the influence of the flesh, for they are designated often by the terms, quote, desires of the flesh, and quote, fleshly appetites. The ancients, however, and the theosophists know them to be a principle in themselves and not merely impulses of the body. There is no hope to be had in this matter from the Western psychology, now in its infancy and wholly devoid of knowledge about the inner, which is the psychical nature of man. And from this point, there is the greatest divergence between it and theosophy. The passions and desires are not produced by the body, but on the contrary, the body is caused to be by the former. It is desire and passion which caused us to be born and will bring us to birth again and again in some body on this earth or another globe. It is by passion and desire that we are made to evolve through the mansions of death called lives on earth. It was by the arising of desire in the unknown first cause, the one absolute existence, that the whole collection of worlds was manifested, and by means of the influence of desire in the now manifested world is the latter kept in existence. This fourth principle 
is the balance principle of the whole seven. It stands in the middle, and from it, the waves go up or down. It is the basis of action and the mover of will. As the old hermetics say, quote, behind will stands desire. For whether we wish to do well or ill, we have to first arouse within us the desire for either course. The good man, who at last becomes even a sage, had at one time in his many lives to arouse the desire for the company of holy men and to keep his desire for progress alive in order to continue on his way. Even a Buddha or a Jesus had to first make a vow, which is a desire, in some life that he would save the world or some part of it and persevere with a desire alive in his heart through countless lives. And equally so, on the other hand, the bad man, life after life, took unto himself low, selfish, and wicked desires, thus debasing instead of purifying this principle. On the material and scientific side of occultism, the use of the inner hidden powers of our nature, if this principle of desire not be strong, the master power of imagination cannot do its work, because though it makes a mold or matrix, the will will not act unless it is moved, directed, and kept up to pitch by desire. The desires and passion, therefore, have two aspects, one being low and the other being high. The low is that shown by the constant placing of consciousness entirely below in the body and the astral body. The high comes from the influence of and aspiration to the trinity above, mind, booty, and spirit. This fourth principle is like the sign Libra in the path of the sun through the zodiac. When the sun, who is the real man, reaches that sign, he trembles in the balance. Should he go back, the worlds would be destroyed. He goes onward, and the whole human race is lifted up to perfection. During the life and placement of the desires and passions, as obtains with the astral body, throughout the entire lower man, and like the ethereal counterpart of our physical person, it may be added to or diminished, made weak or increased in strength, debased or purified. At death, it informs the astral body, which then becomes a mere shell, for when a man dies, this astral body and principle of passion and desire leave the physical in company and coalesce. It is then that the term Kamarupa may be applied, as Kamarupa is really made of astral body and Kama in conjunction, and this joining of the two makes a shape or form which, though ordinarily invisible, is material and may be brought into visibility. Although it is empty of mind and conscience, it has powers of its own that can be exercised whenever the conditions permit. These conditions are furnished by the medium of the spiritualists, and in every seance room, the astral shells of deceased persons are always present to delude the sitters, whose powers of discrimination have been destroyed by wonderment. It is the, quote, devil of the Hindus, and a worse enemy the poor medium could not have. For the astral spook, or Kamarupa, is but the mass of desires and passions abandoned by the real person 
who has fled to, quote, heaven and has no concern for the people left behind, least of all with seances and mediums. Hence, being devoid of the nobler soul, these desires and passions work only on the very lowest part of the medium's nature and stir no good elements, but always the lower leanings of the being. Therefore, it is that even the spiritualists themselves admit that in the ranks of the mediums there is much fraud. And mediums have often confessed, quote, the spirits did tempt me and I committed fraud at their wish. This Kamarupa spook is also the enemy of our civilization, which permits us to execute men for crimes committed and thus throw out into the ether the mass of passion and free desire from the weight of the body and liable at any moment to be attracted to any sensitive person. Thus being attracted, the deplorable images of crimes committed and also the picture of execution and all the accompanying curses and wishes for revenge are implanted in living persons who, not seeing the evil, are unable to throw it off. Thus crimes and new ideas of crimes are willingly propagated every day by those countries where capital punishment prevails. The astral shells together with the living astral body of the medium held by certain forces of nature which theosophists call elementals produce nearly all the phenomena of non-fraudulent spiritualism. The medium's astral body having the power of extension and extrusion, forms the framework for what are called, quote, materialized spirits, making objects move without physical contact, giving reports from deceased relatives, none of them anything more than recollections and pictures from the astral light, and in all this using and being used by the shells of suicides, executed murderers, and all the spooks, as they are naturally near this plane of life. The number of cases which any communication comes from the actual spirit out of the body is so small as to be countable almost on one hand. But the spirits of living men sometimes, while their bodies are asleep, come to seances and take part therein. But they cannot recollect it, do not know how they do it and are not distinguished by mediums from the mass of astral corpses. The fact that such things can be done by the inner man and not be recollected proves nothing against these theories, for the child can see without knowing how the eye works. The savage who has no knowledge of the complex machinery working in his body still carries on the progress of digestion perfectly and that the latter is unconscious with him is exactly in line with the theory, for these acts and doings in the inner man are the unconscious actions of the subconscious mind. These words of conscious and subconscious are of course used relatively, the unconsciousness being of the brain only. And hypnotic experiments have conclusively proved all these theories, as on one day not far away, will be fully admitted. Besides this, the astral shells of suicides and executed criminals are the most coherent, longest lived, and nearest to us of all the shades of Hades, and hence must, out of the necessity of the case, be the real controls of the seance room. Passion and desire together 
with the astral model body are common to men and animals, as also to the vegetable kingdom, though in the last but faintly developed. And at one period in evolution, no further material principles had been developed, and all three higher of mind, soul, and spirit were but latent. Up to this point, man and animal were equal, for the brute in us is made of the passions and the astral body. The development of the germs of the mind made man because it constituted the great differentiation. The God within begins the manas, or mind, and it is the struggle between this God and the brute below which theosophy speaks of and warns about. The lower principle called bad because by comparison with the higher, it is so. But still, it is the basis of action. We cannot rise unless first self asserts itself in the desire to do better. In this aspect, it is called rajas, or the active and bad quality, as distinguished from tamas, or the quality of darkness and indifference. Rising is not possible unless rajas is present to give the impulse, and by the use of this principle of passion, all the higher qualities are brought to at last so refine and elevate our desires that they may be continually placed upon truth and spirit. By this, theosophy does not teach that the passions are to be pandered to or satiated, for a more pernicious doctrine was never taught. But the injunction is to make use of the activity given by the fourth principle so as to ever rise and not to fall under the dominion of the dark quality that ends with annihilation after having begun in selfishness and indifference. Having thus gone over the field and shown what are the lower principles, we find theosophy teaching that at the present point of man's evolution, he is a fully developed quaternary with the higher principles partly developed. Hence it is taught that today man shows himself to be moved by passion and desire. This proved by a glance at the civilizations of the earth, for they are all moved by this principle. And in countries like France, England, and America, a glorification of it is exhibited in the attention to display, to sensuous art, to struggle for power and place in all the habits and modes of living where the gratification of the senses is sometimes esteemed the highest good. But as mind is being involved more and more as we proceed in our course along the line of race development, there can be perceived underneath in all countries the beginning of the transition from the animal possessed of the germ of the real mind to the man of mind complete. This day is therefore known to the masters, who have given out some of the old truths as the, quote, transition period. Proud science and prouder religion do not admit this, but think we are as we will always be. But believing in his teacher, the theosophist sees all around him the evidence that the race mind is changing by enlargement, that old ways of dogmatism are gone, and the, quote, age of inquiry has come, that the inquiries will grow louder year by year and the answers be required 
to satisfy the mind as it grows more and more, until at last all dogmatism being ended, and the race will be ready to face all problems, each man for himself, all working for the good of the whole, and that the end will be the perfecting of those who struggle to overcome the brute. For these reasons, the old doctrines are given out again, and Theosophy asks everyone to reflect whether to give away to the animal below or to look up and be governed by the God within. A fuller treatment of the fourth principle of our Constitution would compel us to consider all questions as those presented by the wonder workers of the East, by spiritualistic phenomena, hypnotism, apparitions, insanity, and the like. But they must be reserved for separate handling. That's where I'll conclude the reading for today. If you'd like to see the original text, it can be found in the book The Ocean by W.Q. Judge, where I began at Chapter 4. Next time, I'll finish the text about the remaining layer of the sevenfold constitution, Manas, which is Chapter 8. There will be time remaining to go over commentary about it, too. I've been your host, Marlon Braccia, for the Musings on Theosophy podcast. It's been generously supported by the Theosophy Company, who publishes books on theosophy and hosts the United Lodge of Theosophists website at ult-la.org. In addition, the schedule of well-established Zoom classes can be found at universaltheosophy.com by choosing Community then Classes by UR from the far right drop-down menu. You are welcome to join any or all of the classes held several times a week for free. There are lots of diverse people with similar interests there, so feel free to join. I hope Episode 3 has done what I hope the whole series will do. That is to broaden your thinking, make you more knowledgeable about yourself, and be more accepting of those around you. I wish all the best to you, and hope to meet you here again for episode four. With the spirit of a worldwide brotherhood, Bonanotte, Afirasen, Matane, and goodbye for now.